You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. And today, Jared, we're going to talk about our hero. I, well, I thought, I thought you were my hero. Yeah, We're talking true. about you today? No, I'm talking about Goliath. Goliath is my hero. Oh. And David. David and Goliath. No, that, that story that we know so well... One of the most abused stories in the Bible, I think. Abused? That's that's strong words. It is, but I think along with like the Daniel story, because dare to be a Daniel, those are the famous sermons of people here growing up, like be brave like Daniel, or be brave like David against obstacles, against bigger things, you know, and that's sort of how that story is usually presented to children. The thing is that when you read it, it's not really about that very much. It's not about a little guy against the odds beats the big guy because he trusts God. It's a, like most things in the Bible, right? It's a lot more interesting. It's a lot more complicated, and the characters are thicker. You know, they're multi-dimensional, not this two-dimensional thing. Yeah, and it kind of couched that like when we when we get into the story, there's some. There's some biblical challenges, and it highlights some of the things we've talked about before on the podcast, but I think we also have to wrap it up in, you know, one of the phrases we hear a lot when we talk about David is that he was a man after God's own heart. And uh, and that's also a little questionable here. Yeah. And so, just kind of being able to, to think about what, what are the implications of how the Bible records... And, you know, for me, I, I think it's when I read the story of David closely, and if you read it with a serious intent, kind of word by word, and you can take out sort of the ways you heard it in those Sunday school settings, it, it just paints a very different picture. I mean, the Bible itself paints a different picture of David than maybe we've we've thought about it. Right, and that's important to remember that it's not about, hey, let's take down the story kind of thing. It's like, right. no, let's actually read it and and ask ourselves the question, like, what are they trying to say back then and not – how would I like to take it to find a story from the Bible that makes me encourages me to do X, Y, and Z? You know, we're we're really not reading these stories for their purposes, what they were written for. And like I said, there's a lot. It's it's really interesting and sort of like, oh gosh, seriously, you have these uh oh moments and aha moments reading the story of David and seeing things that are there that are that are actually planted there to make you think, and not just to sort of accept. Okay, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Sort of everybody's a little bit of a bad guy. Yeah, maybe let's paint this picture. I'd like to maybe paint it in this kind of Sunday school way. I can give kind of the summary if I can go back to those memories. And then Uh, let's maybe look at some of the discrepancies in the story and kind of jump in from there. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act... That sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So what, for me, and, and you, can, you can have your own version of this story, but for me, David and Goliath really was, and this is also helpful for people who have, maybe you haven't read that story in a long time, is we have this, uh, this little the way I would have had it. So there's no historical accuracy or even biblical accuracy with what I'm going to say. I'm just going to kind of riff off what I heard in Sunday school, which was 
There's this little kid, David. Who had magic superpowers. No, that's that's a very different... That's Marvel. You're getting way <laughs> oh, yeah. extra biblical here. Eh, whatever. Uh, no. So there's this little kid, David, and there is a scaredy cat king, Saul. Saul and the Israelites can't stand up to this uh, giant named Goliath, the Philistine champion who is fighting against the Israelites. And here is David who trusts God more than... He's, he's scratching his head saying, well, if we have God on our side, why why are you scared of this Goliath guy? And he was really just there to bring his older, uh, more battle-tested brothers some dinner or lunch. And uh, they're all talking about this Goliath. And he says, okay, uh, who is this guy? Oh, well, you know, God's on our side. So why are we afraid? You know, I well, uh, you know, suit me up. I'm going to go out there. And I don't need a sword. I don't need anything. I just need my slingshot. Put me in, coach. And I'm, I'm going to go take my slingshot. And he kind of winds up, and smacks Goliath in the forehead. Goliath dies. The Philistines are are uh, dispersed, and David wins the day. Yeah. So be like David. Be brave like David. Right. Don't look. Don't look at the odds. So. Okay. So let's dig into that a little. Yeah. Bit. When you look at it a little more closely, there. I think there are two basic like categories of things we can look at. One is what the story says sort of in between the lines a little bit about David's character, that it's more complex than just he's a nice guy. And also just some discrepancies or oddities in the story that have made people curious for a very long time. So, one of the character things is, you know, we remember that this, that the king before David is Saul. Well, the king during this story is Saul. David's not a king. And Dave, Saul is described as somebody, like when he comes onto the scene in chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9, he's, he comes on the scene and he's described as being, you know, there wasn't anybody like him in Israel that was more handsome than he, and he stood head and shoulders above everyone else, so he's very tall and he's very handsome. And okay, that's interesting because biblical writers don't really describe people very often, uh, hardly at all. Like, what does Moses look like? What does Abraham look like? Who cares? So, when somebody's being described, something's going on. You got to pay attention to that. And it turns out that, you know, Saul, long story short, doesn't work out. He's a horrible king. He is basically just, you know, a disaster that happens. And so, God tells Samuel, he anointed, he's a prophet and a priest and a judge, and he, he anointed Saul. But now God says, yeah, we're done with Saul. I have somebody else in mind. Go to the house of Jesse. And this brings us now to the introduction of David in chapter 16. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and uh, he says, okay, well, bring me your son. So his eldest comes to him. His name is Eliab. And Samuel says, surely this has got to be the king. Look at this guy. You know, he's, he's wonderful. But then God breaks and says, listen, we made this mistake once before. You know, God doesn't look at the outside of a person. God looks at the heart. Don't look at their appearance. Their appearance is not going to be a judge of how well they're going to do. So, it's not him. And then it sort of goes through the line to the next son, the third son, the fourth, the fifth, sixth. And none of them are God's choice for king until finally Samuel says, do you have anybody else? And Jesse goes, well, there's David. Yeah, but he's out in the field tending the sheep. And he says, well, bring him in. He goes, well, that's the guy. And right there, see, this is one of these little subtle things in the story. This is in 1 Samuel 16 and uh, verse 12. Uh, He sent and brought him, David, in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Why are they telling us that? You just got done telling us that God doesn't look at somebody's appearance. 
And that word handsome is the same word, it's just the word tov in Hebrew, which means good. It's, it's a pretty generic word. But this is, this is the same way that Saul is described. So right there, you're, as soon as you're introduced to David, you're looking at his physical description and you're saying, how is this guy going to do? You know, is, is he going to be Saul or is he going to be a better king than Saul is? And if, if you know how the story goes, David becomes a morally very sort of a corrupted character, you know, get the whole Bathsheba thing, right, Jared, yeah, and, and some other things too, yeah. So, so there he is, he's mentioned, uh, you know, his, his appearance is mentioned, and um, yeah, then, and then the, his appearance comes up again in the David and Goliath story, 1742, about him being ruddy and handsome. And again, it's just, it's one of these things that just, it makes you stop and think, because David's the last person you'd expect to be given a physical description given what God just said like four verses earlier. So what what does that mean for you when you read that and say, why are those standing next to each other? What's the what's the writer uh, of Samuel trying to say by giving this physical description? Well, I, I think it's... To, okay, actually, I think there are two options. One is that David is described as ruddy and right. handsome, like red-cheeked, sort of youthful, which for some people means, well, that means that He's actually not at all like Saul. He he has a totally different look about him. He looks like a little kid, right? So in other words, this could be this could be positive. It could be a way of contrasting David to Saul. On the other hand, he's ruddy, had beautiful eyes. Okay, whatever that means, and he was handsome. See that same word that describes Saul. So the dis, the physical description of David is already full of like ambiguities. It's. You don't know what to conclude about David based on the description. It could go either way. You got to wait and read the rest of the story to see where it goes. But you're already being um, introduced to something that you've got to think through. And I think that's just why biblical narrative is so interesting. It's actually not sort of flat and simplistic and story-like. They're trying to – it's layered and they're trying to make you think of stuff. Yeah, that seems – you know, you can correct me here, but in uh, 1 Samuel 17, when Goliath sees David – it says, and he disdained him, and then kind of has this kind of uh, reason there. Yeah. He disdained him because he was young. He was a youth. He was ruddy. Like, but then that ruddy and handsome, it's like, well, is, is that part of the reason that he disdained him? Like, are there three reasons? Because he was youth, he was ruddy, and he was handsome. Yeah. Um, or is it because he was a youth, and then you're just kind of adding this ruddy and handsome there to, right. again, make this kind of Saul connection? Right. Yeah. And, and, that's, and this is... You know, sometimes biblical narrative is ambiguous, and I, I, I believe that oftentimes it's intentionally ambiguous, because it's not just going to lay the goods out for you. You've got to think about what's happening in this story. So, you, you know, you started this by saying there's some things about David's character, and, and I think in, in future podcasts, hopefully, we can, there's, there's way more to David's character issues than just what we have here. It's, this is just the beginning. Right. Um, but how would you tie that? Are you saying that the character issue is... Uh, the biblical writers are equating David in some sense to Saul, who was a little bit... I'm trying to understand how the uh, comparing him physically puts David in question. Because God doesn't care about physical appearance. And physical appearance is what fooled people about Saul. Yeah, okay. And now David is described in a way that 
It's like a Venn diagram. The, the descriptions significantly overlap. They're not exactly the same, but they overlap. So you're saying, okay, is this just the same mistake with a slightly different character? Since Saul was positioned as maybe not the greatest of kings, then by by calling by describing David in the same way as Saul, you're kind of you're potentially putting him already in that same bucket. You either you either the writer's either saying, okay, here's somebody very different. Or here's somebody who's pretty much the same. And I, th- I just want to suggest that as you read the story of David, you find someone who exhibits characteristics and character traits of Saul, but also is very different. You, you, ha- you don't have a perfect character here. You have someone who is going to have flaws. Look for the flaws as you're reading this. And, you know, the Bathsheba incident, right? And there's some other things, too, that happen later on in the story, like the whole Philistine thing, right? Mm-hmm. Right, when he's with, with – he, he basically, he, he hangs out with Philistines for 18 months, the enemies, and he uses that to his political advantage. Maybe we'll get to that. that that's a whole other story for another time. Well, well, I think it ties here because – yeah, so late, later on in the story, um, which we don't want to give away too much, but, ba- but David basically – I don't know if treason is too strong of a word, but he, he basically turns his back on – the Judahites, at least the Israelites, are you know running away from Saul, yeah. and and joins the Philistine army, right? Essentially, and I, I, the only reason I bring that up or, or wanted to keep talking about that is because here in the First Samuel seventeen, you know, one of his other character flaws is kind of this. It's a little bit of an arrogance, yeah, but also a little bit of shadiness, kind of like you can you can read this story in First Samuel seventeen in such a way that. David's really already kind of making these political moves. He he he's at least being strategic. Maybe is a, a positive way of saying that. Yeah, he he's no innocent. He does not come across as somebody who's just innocently wanting to glorify God. Right. He doesn't come across. He comes across as someone who is thinking more strategically, and you could even say is interested in power at this point. Right. Because he comes to the camp to, you know, he, he's going from his father's house in Bethlehem and coming down to basically give his older brother something to eat. He goes back and forth. That's sort of what his job is. And when he shows up and he hears Goliath raging on and on and on about what he's going to do and nobody wants to challenge him, blah, blah, blah. Then, then you get to like verses 24 to 30. Again, I can't stress this enough. Don't do this while you're driving, but just verses 24 to 30. You know, David shows up and the Israelites are talking to themselves and they say, you know, uh, verse 24, have you seen this man, verse 25, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, that's Goliath. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give his daughter to make his family, give him his daughter to make his family free in Israel. So the, the person who defeats Goliath, Saul, is going to give him his daughter, which basically means you're going to be introduced to the royal family. That's that's not a small thing. Yeah, you're going to become a prince. Which means potentially, now Saul has his own sons, but potentially you could be in line to being king at that point. If the other, if, if an accident happens to the others, which seems to happen throughout the course yeah, right. of these stories. Yeah, the, the you know? air qu- everyone can't see your air quotes there. Yeah, right, exactly. The, the right. accidents <laughs> that happen to people who are in line for the throne. It's like the surprise, I might have to arrange an accident for you, you know, that kind of a thing. So, And it's, it's sort of like you, you can read the story of David that way, that he's, he's almost calculating. And so, so David shows up, and uh, David said, verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. In other words, they said the same thing again. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. And right then, his eldest brother Eliab shows up and he heard him talk and he heard him talking to the men. He, he sees David sort of, you know, in close quarters talking to these men about this stuff. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Interesting. He said, what are you doing here? You know, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. And David said, I just love this part of the story. David said, well, what have I done now? I was only asking you a question. You know, he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So Eliab sort of confronts him and says, basically, I know you, little brother. What are you doing here? And, and I'm just asking a question. No, you're not. Are you just asking a question, David, or are you asking a question? <laughs> you know? and, and so he turns away from Eliab, his eldest brother, and he asks the same question again to the – now, what happens to the person who kills Goliath? So it, it looks – there's he knows exactly what he's getting himself into and what the consequences are he's not just there to say i need to defend our god's honor and i need to defend our people's honor there's something going on here that he is actually on a quest for power and i don't think that's overreading the text that's there and then the very fact that he marches into Saul's quarters and says yeah, listen, I'll, I'll take care of this for you. Even to do that is really a – see, he, Saul is the one who should be fighting. Saul is the one who should be fighting because he's pretty tall too, right? He's not as tall as Goliath, but he's a tall man. He's the champion. He is abdicating his responsibility. For David to march in and say, I'll do it, that's almost – that's a muted claim of kingship at that point. Well, yeah, it's a muted claim of kingship on his part, but also from the the writers of the story are positioning this in such a way that you ask that question. Why yes. isn't the king, who should be the champion, facing Goliath? Mm, maybe there's something wrong with this king, Saul. Maybe he's not doing what he should be as king. And here we have this, who who is this young boy who seems to have more faith in God than Saul and has more courage and and so the it is it is narratively whatever the word yeah. would be in in the narrative, <laughs> yeah. David is uh, sort of being conniving, but the writers are a little bit endorsing this. Uh, you know who who is this Saul guy again? And so they're kind of undermining Saul throughout this. It's both because it is definitely you read this story and you say Saul's not a good king at all. I mean he's the one who should be on the front lines. But then you still have David showing up and saying, I'll do it. And his defense is, I've killed a lot of animals with my sling. And I'm going to do the same thing to this Philistine. And, and Saul's like, you're too young, you can't do this. And David basically talks him into it. And there is a bit of youthful bravado alongside with, let's say, this faith in God and his willingness to put his life on the line, so to speak, for defending God's honor and the people's honor. In other words, it's, it's, I don't want to make the mistake, it's not either or. Yeah, it's right. not like David is negative, but David's both. You know, Saul is pretty much negative in these stories, period. But it's not like David is this pure angel that comes floating down to save the day. He's got something in his sights, and it looks like he's going after it at this point by 
presuming to march into Saul's tent as a teenager or whatever and say, I got this. Yeah, what struck me just in reading this was, well, well, two things. One, it's interesting that the people, the Israelites, kind of are saying, the king is going to greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. Just kind of offering this up. And then David's, you, you would expect it to be the other way around. I would expect David first to ask, what happens if you kill this Philistine? And then the answer is, the king will greatly enrich the man who kills him, and you get to be a prince. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not how it is. So it, it could have puts that in question a little bit of David's like, wait, what? Yeah. T- tell me again, What what's this? Oh, yeah. mm, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it, am I here? I get this picture of him just like, am I hearing that right? Like looking around like, really? This if, I, if I do this, I get to be prince? Oh, this is too good to be true. Yeah, yeah and then and immediately his older brother, uh, and for anyone who has older siblings kind of knows this, but yeah, his older brother's like, oh my gosh, I know David. And I know, like, he, I just imagine him kind of breaking up the crowd and it's like, guys, don't listen to this guy. Yeah, exactly right. He's just my stupid good brother. Exactly. I know, and, and just so the strong... And then the gives strength, him a wedgie. But the strength of his language is like, yeah. I know your presumption. I know that you have something, you have a scheme going on here. Yeah. Evil of your heart. Like, that's pretty strong. You're always scheming, David. I grew up... Yeah. With, you, can't, you can't fool your family. You can fool these people, can't fool your family. You're, exactly. You're a flawed character. And, you know, not to go too far astray from this story, but... You know, you read commentaries on this, and I'll be very quick to pick out, like, a lot of this sounds like the Joseph story in Genesis, where the youngest brother basically hacks off the older brothers because of his arrogance, his cockiness, right? In that story, Joseph is given this coat of many colors, again, whatever that means, but, or the technicolor dream coat, according to Broadway, but, and, and that's a sign of his being favored by his father, Jacob. And so, what does Joseph do? He goes out into the field where his brothers are working and says, yeah, basically, dad loves me best. Look at the coat he gave me. Oh, by the way, I had a dream. One day, you're all going to fall down and worship me. That, okay, this is like – and what do they do? They throw him into a well, and that's how the story of Joseph begins because you have this young cocky guy who has to learn humility, and that's part of what happens with David too. He He, mm-hmm. he actually matures. He's a complex moral figure, but he matures as the story goes on. And it's another, to me, it's another example of a whole other series of podcasts we could do, Jared, on how Genesis anticipates this monarchic period. There's a lot of David stuff going on in the book of Genesis, and this is one of those examples. So, Mm -hmm. I I think, again, it's another layer of just meaning and reflection on the part of these biblical writers to sort of tie a lot of this stuff together. I just find it fascinating, you know, so... Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey everyone, my name is Amber G from California, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. One thing I've appreciated about this podcast is that there are other normal people who read their Bibles without using it as a weapon. I get to learn about many influential folks who act like Jesus without alienating large groups of people. 
If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of this group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Shea Box, Lauren O'Connell, Chrissy Florence, Logan Jansen, Matt, Brad Harris, Ryan Morrison, and Martin Brightup. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. Well, let's go back and look a little bit in the, at the text, because I think there's some interesting things going on here that you just... I remember, uh, you know, when we first reading these things, and as an as an adult, and, and even more recently, and being kind of kicking myself, like, oh my gosh, I, I I remember seeing these things as a kid, but when you grow up in a tradition where you're not allowed to question the text, you're not allowed to have any doubts or say like, wait a minute, I thought that wait, that's not two and two is not equaling four here, and now going back and kind of saying, oh. Well, that makes me feel good. Like, I'm not going crazy. Um, so, maybe talk about a few of those, even kind of in, as we're introduced to David, there's some interesting discrepancies going yeah, on. Yeah, very, very, right here, you're introduced to things that just make you stop and think a little bit. Like, for example, it's people have picked up this is a really obvious thing if you just read chapter 16 and 17 together. In chapter 16, David is anointed king. It's a private ceremony. It's just, you know, uh, David and, and Samuel and the family, I guess. But uh, the Spirit of God comes on David, and then we read that an evil spirit, God sends an evil spirit to Saul, basically making him, it sounds like he's depressed or maybe bipolar or something like that. That's that, that's the um, behavior he seems to um, exhibit here. That's what some people say that anyway. But the thing is that, you know, there's no medication, there's no therapy, but he needs music to soothe him. And so, you have one of his people say, you know, I, I know this guy, he's a son of Jesse in Bethlehem, He's and he's skillful in playing a lyre, uh, you know, just sort of like a, a harp kind of thing, you know. And he's skillful in playing. He's also a man of valor. Now, listen to this. He's a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. I mean, that's a weird thing to say of David before he's done anything to call him a warrior. Well, again, that's that's the writer signaling where some of this story is going to go. You know, it's, a, it's anachronistic to call David a warrior now when he's a kid and he hasn't done anything warrior-like. And that's that's just that alone is just an interesting thing to think about. But the here here's the thing. David plays the lyre for Saul. Saul feels better. And so at that point David enters Saul's service. And he's living with Saul and he is playing the lyre whenever Saul gets upset, David plays the lyre and it soothes him and so he was introduced as a pretty important person in Saul's court. That's that's how David makes his way into the court, right? But now the David and Goliath story, basically, you get to a point in the story where it's like, 
we've never heard of him before. Who is this David? In other words, he's introduced a second time as, you know, in verse 12, now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. Yeah, we know this. And here, you know, Saul is very old and what David did is, you know, he was the youngest of his brothers and he would go back and forth um, from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem and then he would go down, you know, to uh, to feed his brothers, right? So, he was he was going like back and forth and not really stable in one place like in Saul's court and, you know, it, it's like, where is he? <laughs> You know, and why are we being introduced to David a second time? We, we read this already in chapter 16, David is introduced. Now he's introduced a second time as if we've never heard of the guy. And it seems like nobody knows who he is, because you get to the end of the story of David and Goliath, and that's in 1755 and 58. These are the last few verses. And after David is victorious, Saul saw David go out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. The king said, inquire whose son this stripling is. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I was like, how can Saul not know who he is? This is this is a discrepancy. I mean, however, if you explain it, that you know, probably multiple explanations. But most people think like you have here a, a, a discrepancy that suggests you have two. This is how biblical scholars talk. You have two David traditions that are edited together in these two stories and sort of made to fit, but the fit is very uneasy. So just like we have two creation stories, so you have two kind of creation traditions. In Genesis one one through two four and then two four through three, and they an editor has come and kind of combined these and and tried to harmonize these in some way. Not even harmonize. I'm not going to put it that way, but edited them together. Yeah, because he respects the traditions. Right. Yeah, he respects the tradition. That's why I didn't want to harmonize because I, I think there's something to kind of keeping two traditions alive. Right. In this. Right. And and, and here we see David. We see in the David and Goliath story or at least the beginning of David's story here in 16 and 17, we see a similar editing where every once in a while you kind of get this sense that we're starting the story over. Right. Just like if you read, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you feel like, oh, wait, I thought we already did this. And it feels like you're starting it over because in some senses you are. You are. And and so w- with that, you know, it makes very little sense, just to summarize what you're saying, that in all of chapter 16, David seems to be on very intimate terms with Saul, as his, basically his medication for this evil spirit. And so, you would imagine there would be lots of interactions. At the very least, very common in the ancient world would be to know whose son you are. Right, right. Um, And so, that's kind of how you introduce yourself. And so, it seems very bizarre here at the end of 17 for Saul to say, who is this, whose son is this young man? And then for Abner, the commander of the armor, army not to know. So, two, you have two people right. who have no idea I mean, that's the is. key, because you could always say, well, the reason Saul doesn't know it is because he's a complete moron, yeah, right. which makes him a or bad king. Or he's super sick, you know, or mental he, health yeah. or whatever. Or that yeah. evil spirit that God put on him exactly. is, is like, d- d- incapacitating him, but Abner doesn't know either. They, they clearly are like, they're watching this battle, and here's this young guy, and they don't know who he is. Like, this guy came out of nowhere, you know? and. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's just, it's at least interesting. You know, this is like a fissure in the text, a fissure in the story that makes you, 
Well, it doesn't make everybody ask this question, but if you're interested in things like the literary integrity of a story, these things jump out at you. If it's in the Bible or in any other piece of literature, you would say something weird is going on here. It's like it's like I'm reading two different stories at some points. And, you know, for people, this is, you know, a lot of what biblical scholarship does is it asks questions of origins, like where do these stories come from and who put them together like this, right? And that's the question that a lot of people have too, just, you know, normal people reading the Bible, like you said, when you were young, just noticing things, but we're not allowed to ask them. That's a bad thing. Another example of that is when you look up in, in 2 Samuel 21 there, we have the question of who actually killed Goliath. Yeah. So in 2 Samuel 21, we have Elhanan killing Goliath. And yet here in, in 1 Samuel 17, it's it's David who kills Goliath. And, and interestingly enough, then you get to Chronicles, which is really a retelling of the Samuel King's story and, and written much later in chapter 20. You can see them trying to like make sense of this because in that verse, they have Elhanan killed Lami, the brother of Goliath. Right. Um, even though, and it says the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, which is the same description you get right. uh, earlier. So they're yeah. really struggling here to make sense of who killed Goliath because in the tradition that they're working from, we have David and we have Elhanan. And so they have to sort of figure this out somehow. Yeah, what say people think is exactly that. You've got these two traditions. And then Chronicles, First Chronicles 20, verse 5, tries to mediate between them and, and harmonize them a little bit. Because that's that he does that a lot, this writer of First and Second Chronicles. But you know, you've got this Elhanan in Second Samuel who is said to kill. Goliath, and again, that weaver's beam, you know, is is the same description that we find in 1 Samuel 17 in the David and Goliath story. So, people say, it's the same person, so who did it? And pretty much, like, you know, th- this is the answer you'll get from most people who study this, is that, okay, the Elhanan tradition is actually accurate. <laughs> or th- this is the one that, you know, he, he did something, because Elhanan is one of the great mighty fighting men that are listed at the end of Second Samuel, and this is one of his deeds. And that deed was sort of by the writer lifted off of Elhanan and placed on David to magnify and idealize David as a figure without needing to correct you know, without trying to cover up what he's doing, because these writers and editors weren't idiots. They knew that it was Elhanan in Second Samuel and David in First Samuel. They, they, they knew the discrepancy as much as anybody else. But th- there's probably a reason why David is given that honor of having killed Goliath and not just one of his fighting men, because you're presenting a picture of David at the very early stages of his, of his career as being someone who is very, very brave and very competent as a warrior, unlike Saul. He's a very competent warrior. But there you have it. I mean, it's, just, it, it's, it's right there, and you got to deal with it somehow. Maybe we're asking each other the wrong – maybe I'm asking the wrong person. You're not a historian in that sense. But I wonder if that was – it seems like that would be pretty common. When you start to kind of mythologize or, you know, you, you want to posture your kings in the best possible light, that uh, sort of what happens to the king's men happens to the king. Yeah. 
And so you kind of have this, I, I just wonder if that would have been a more common practice. I could imagine it, given all the propagandistic way that stories were told in the ancient world, that you would maybe often attribute these wonderful deeds, maybe done by the king's men, as though the king himself did it. And using the word propaganda is key, and I, I know that's not a word that all of our listeners will feel comfortable using of portions of the Bible, but it is regularly used of this section of the Bible, talking about David especially. It's, it seems like – this whole story seems like a propping David up, a pro-David story, but still dealing with some of the dark side. You can't ignore the dark side. It's there, but at the end of the day, basically, David was awesome, and he was a champion, and he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, the whole Bathsheba thing, we get it, but still, <laughs> apart from that, in terms of the worship of Yahweh, he was a man after God's own heart. He didn't stray from that. Well, and I want to point that out, because if we can hear toward the end of this podcast, talk a little bit about the implications of this, because I know for people who feel like they've been scandalized because they didn't get to see the kind of the dark underbelly of David because their religious tradition didn't emphasize those parts of the Bible. I think, for me, the real scandal or the real uh, interesting thing is that it is there. Yeah, we're not making it up. In the Bible. Like, there are a lot of uh, political traditions, ancient history writing, where you would have whitewashed that. You would have not had left no trace of your kings having these uh, questionable deeds in their life and here in the Bible. So, for me, it's more surprising that we actually have those in the text and the Bible seems to be okay with that. Right. Which is a telling bit of information in terms of the fact that, if anything, they were not trying to satisfy purely like intellectual historical curiosities. It wasn't just, let's get the story straight, what actually happened? That's a modern question. They had traditions, and they were bringing them together. They were trying to respect them as much as possible. They were very minimalist in changing traditions to make things fit. They left them there, and they put them together. And sometimes the way they put them together reveals these, pro what we will call problems, right? Like, who killed Goliath, right? How can David be introduced twice? But that's, that's a very modern bias, and we walk into the Bible expecting it not to do those things because it's God's Word, and God would never do this to us. Well, God's doing it to you, so there you – what are you going to do And I trust this? that a little more. Like, there's something nice and more trustworthy to me about a Bible that will retain these traditions that have – if not contradictory, sometimes contradictory, but if not also just challenging or different trajectories or different ways of telling the story, rather than, again, I feel like for me, my tradition uh, being Southern Baptist growing up, like we weren't okay with what the Bible itself does. Like somehow we needed it to all say the same thing and not have different traditions when the the Bible itself doesn't do that, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm more comfortable with a Bible that does that because it feels more authentic and it's not simply propagandistic. There's self-critiquing in there. There's conflicting stories. Um, and, and so, I think that's actually something, not a problem with the Bible. And that's kind of how, I guess, what I'm saying is I think we've thought of those as problems. Like, if you look up the skeptic's Bible and they'll, like, point out these who killed Goliath? Was it Elhanan or was it David? Aha, gotcha. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't have to be a gotcha. That's the traditions coming together, and I appreciate that they present you with both of those traditions. Absolutely, yeah. Well, well there are a couple more little things that we can mention that I think are interesting, and, and um, 
see if this helps anybody, you know, wrap their heads around this story like we're trying to. But in chapter 17, again, this is where we are, in verses 50 and 51, it really looks as if Goliath is killed twice. And it's a really odd phrasing. So, you read, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. So, the question is, did David kill him with a sling or did David kill him with the sword? It says both. What Now, some of you who have a Bible open in front of you, you might say, well, there's no problem here because my Bible doesn't say that he killed him with a sword. It says that he finished him off with a sword. But it doesn't say that, actually. It, it says he killed him twice. And the question is, was it with a sling or was it with a sword? And, you know, maybe this is one of these, um, I don't know, I, I, there, we don't have footnotes here to tell us how to read this stuff. You have to sort of like figure it out and try to make sense of it. The way I always looked at this is that it's not really so much a discrepancy as it is very intentional on the part of the writer, because David, in killing him with a sling, which is the weapon of a shepherd, but he's also killing him with a sword, which is the weapon of a king. Right. We see a transformation of David from shepherd boy to king in this event. Right. Now, some say, well, there, this is more evidence of two traditions. That may be true. I don't really have, I'm not, I don't lose a moment's sleep over that, but there's something appealing to about the artisticness of this, like, side by side, putting it like this. We're seeing a transition moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But another, uh, the, maybe one more just that I'll mention because, you know. We're here. Let's knock a few of these off. But yeah. in, in 17 and then 54, this is the end of the story. Um, you know, the, the Goliath is dead and they're routing the Philistines. And then the Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. I, I guess David has a tent. He's bringing food for his brothers, but I guess he's got to stay someplace but that sounds a bit royal almost, like he has his tent. He puts his armor in his tent. That's what a king does, by the way. You take the armor of the vanquished, you put it in your tent. But what's really interesting is that he took the head of Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. This is a big problem in terms of the chronology of the text, because we're in 1 Samuel 17. Jerusalem isn't even a thing until 2 Samuel 5. A bunch of chapters later, after David is king, he captures Jerusalem and makes it the capital. There is no Jerusalem. It, Jerusalem is now, it, it's 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 run by non-Israelites, Jebusites. Yeah, this isn't this isn't the the capital that we would think of it at the time. It's actually not even an Israelite city. Exactly. So it makes no sense for David at this point in the story to take it to Jerusalem. Right. So it's it's just like you know what's going on there. Is this a? It, it's sort of like calling David a warrior way back in chapter sixteen when he's just a shepherd who's going to play his harp right? He's a great warrior. 
you're anticipating something. And by saying, by mentioning Jerusalem in this, you're signaling to the readers where the story is going and ultimately what is happening here. David is very kingly at this moment. He's already king in Jerusalem now, even though he's not, right? But it's, it's, it's an interesting discrepancy that I think, like Goliath being killed twice, it's a discrepancy that may have more like literary and theological explanations than David being introduced twice, for example. I, I think those are different kinds of problems. But, but even so, it's just, you know, it's a multi-layered story. And, you know, just one thing, I'll, I hope this is helpful, and I'll throw this out, you know, Jared, I don't know if, if we want to riff on this a little bit, but all these things, all these discrepancies that we're mentioning here, they, they happen basically between verses 12 and 31, and then starting in verse 55 again. These are where the discrepancies occur in the story. In the Greek version of the David and Goliath story, all that is missing. Now, let's not freak out here a little bit. Let's just back up a little bit and sort of talk about what's going on here. There, there came a point in time in Israel's history, this is about a couple hundred years before Jesus, where Greek became the dominant culture, and so the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek so people could actually understand it because they weren't speaking Hebrew as much anymore. And that, that's called the Septuagint. That's the, you know, the technical scholarly term, but it's, it's the Greek translation. And there's something about this Greek translation that only has part of the story. David is not introduced twice in the Greek version. And it's not like at the end where Abner and Saul have no idea who he is. That's not in the Greek tradition. So you have a version of the Hebrew, a version of the David and Goliath story out there that's very, very old that only represents one of these two traditions. Is that confusing, Jared? Talk to me. Is that is this does this make any sense, or should we follow up on this a little bit? No, I, I think it makes sense. I, my question would be, why do you think that is? Why, why do I think that is? Is because well, why do I think this is? This is the thing people debate. But the oh boy, do we have an hour more? Because I would really like to talk about this. But okay, I'll give I'll give the tweet version of it. The Greek translation of the of the Hebrew David and Goliath story that Hebrew that it was taken from is a different Hebrew tradition than the Hebrew tradition we have in our Bible our Bible has both of those brought together but there is another Hebrew version of the story this isn't just a problem with Greek translators deciding they want to leave stuff out they're right. actually dependent on a whole other tradition of Hebrew that goes back who knows how long and this is not the only example of this we have in the Bible. There are other big examples, whole books of the Bible that seem to work this way. And the whole point is this, is just, you know, these stories have complex origins, and they have complex histories of development and even of evolution, just like if you've ever, like, studied folklore or how nursery rhymes work or anything, they change over time. They get told and told and told again. And sometimes they get versions get stuffed together. Sometimes they get separated out. When you're dealing largely with oral cultures, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. You're going to have these different versions floating around. And this, you know, there are some Jews living at a certain point of time, a few hundred years before Jesus, who basically respected all these traditions. 
and put them together in this sacred text that we now call the Bible. Okay, so uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier, and then I want to maybe try to summarize what you were saying there. Just when we're talking about the literary, when we have David taking the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, I just... I think we find that uh, in several places in the Bible, and the first thing that came to my mind was in, in the book of Jonah, in I think in the first or second chapter, there are not many chapters to choose from there, <laughs> you have the people on the boat making sacrifices to God. And I always think of that. And you also have this sense in which they're like right by the temple, where there's like no way, what, there's no way you're, you're making sacrifices on a boat. Right. Uh, so, right in the middle of this thing that seems historical, or it's, it's, it's trying to at least tell somewhat of a a narrative or a story of, of that's believable, you have this somewhat outrageous thing happening, and it makes you sort of stop and think. Like, I could have just imagined, you know, if you're reading closely, that's kind of my point, is when we started this, we were talking about, this isn't about saying gotcha moments to the Bible. It's actually saying, if we look closely, this is a very nuanced and sophisticated book, and we have here this uh, code of David taking the head to Jerusalem, and that's supposed to signal something. It's not supposed to, just like in Jonah, when they're making sacrifices on the boat, you're not supposed to say, that's ludicrous. Who would ever make sacrifices on a wooden boat in the middle of the ocean? These aren't incidental details. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, they're not incidental, and they're there for a reason, and they're not there for you to poke fun at the Bible. They're there to say, oh, there's something significant about this. What might it be? And it, it sort of helps you, point, it points you in the, in the direction of where the text is going and what it's trying to say. So anyway, we just have examples of that all over the Bible, and I think it's important because it's easy to dismiss these things and be kind of, I think, what C.S. Lewis called, like, have that chronological snobbery, right. where somehow we're super smart and sophisticated, and they were really dumb. But so I, I want to kind of oversimplify what you said about the tradition with the Septuagint or the Greek translation. So if I'm, if I'm oversimplifying to the point that it's grossly inaccurate, you can let me know, but just thinking of... I think sometimes people think, well, there's like one Hebrew book that's called the Old Testament, and then some folks who spoke Greek and Hebrew were like, oh, we should translate this for the Greek people. And that's that's not the case. There were, and again, this is where I'll oversimplify, but when you say tradition, I think for in people's minds, it might be easy to say there were maybe multiple versions yeah. of the book. And the Greek people who translated it had one version of the book, but there were other versions out there. Would that be a fair way to say that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the, okay. the again, to, to speaking as historians, which is what a lot of modern people are when they read the Bible, the, 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 the Bible that we have in front of us, this is a whole other podcast and series too, but the Bible we have in front of us has a, has a history. It didn't just pop out of nowhere. It developed over time. We're just catching things pretty late in the process. We're not seeing the origins of anything. And we catch glimpses of it when we look at things like this Greek translation. Like, why is it different? How do we explain the differences between this Greek version, which is missing half the story, the half that's the problem? You know, it, it seems to have one of these traditions, one of these versions of the David and Goliath story that it took as, well, this is the story, but others had others, and you combine them at some certain point later on when both of these traditions are really old and, let me even say, sacred and venerated, and you want to hold on to them. And that's why the Bible that we have is really a work of editing as much as anything, of, of people putting things together. And, you know, learned people who are trying to capture 
the history and the essence of who they are as a people, and you bring your tradition along with you. And the fact that these things cause contradictions is more of a problem for a modern mindset than for an ancient one. They just didn't think that way. It didn't bother them that, well, we can't do this because there's a little discrepancy. Let's clear this up because some modern, you know, Westerners are going to not like this in a few thousand years. It's just, we, we have to step How into those they? ancient... Yeah. How dare they not think that way? Yeah, exactly. They, they didn't think like us. The world has not been like us since forever. And, and I think respecting the text is about not trying to cover up these things, but trying to understand them. And as a result, I think coming to a maybe a deeper understanding of, well, what is the Bible and how does it work and how do we read it? You know, we, we're not the first ones to do that. Well, I think that's a, a perfect segue as we come to the end of our time. You think so? Can I say one more thing? Because no. this, this will blow people away. No, it better be amazing if you're going you're gonna to take amazing. us past that ending point there. Okay, Goliath is six cubits and a span, which a cubit is a foot and a half. So six cubits and a span is nine foot, nine inches, which is very tall. That's in the Hebrew. The Greek version has him four cubits in a span. So he's basically six foot nine. And people say the Septuagint is right. <laughs> he's not 10 feet tall. He's probably more like six and a half feet tall. So that's another thing the Septuagint does. It sort of brings Goliath down to size. Now, I'm sorry. If I saw somebody six foot nine coming at me with a spear, I'd run. I mean, I know people who are that tall, and I'm afraid of them. They can hurt me. Right. right. You don't need to be nine foot tall to make that scary. Right. Especially if you're a teenager who's used to tending sheep. But anyway. Yeah, I just I – just, is. Man, we're scratching the surface, folks. This is just so much fun to look at this stuff this way. But it raises the question of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? It really does. All right. Thanks, folks, for uh, listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. If you want to keep the conversation going about uh, this and all kinds of stuff, there's all kinds of conversations happening on Slack. If you wanted to go to patreon.com, front slash The Bible for Normal People, or just head over to uh, pedens.com or thebiblefornormalpeople.com, and there's lots of blogs and articles and things to engage with there as well. So hopefully we can keep going on these interesting, fascinating stories uh, about the Bible that maybe we've never heard before. Absolutely. And thanks for listening folks as always we appreciate when you download and press play it means a lot yep see you next time see ya